Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is our last uh, Sunday on our Advent theme of Finding Christ in Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. And what we've seen so far is Ebenezer Scrooge, obviously, is this miserable man who grew up in a damaged home. Uh, he was a lonely child who then messed up his own adult life through his own bad decisions. Like so many of us, he carries the pain of the past into who he became as an adult. But instead of getting better, he got bitter. And he turned into this severe, sour, kind of solitary man. But then he experiences something. Theologians would call it prevenient grace. Not convenient grace, but prevenient grace, which simply means grace that comes before anything we do. It's a divine grace that precedes any human action. In other words, God by his own choice starts to show love to people at various times in their lives. God acts in love. Provenient grace means God takes the initiative. He gets the ball of spiritual transformation rolling. It's a divine intervention, if you will. Because Scrooge, he wasn't interested, he wasn't looking to change his life. He was content to stay in his same sad rut. He didn't do anything to earn God's grace. God decided to pursue him, sends him a series of spiritual messengers to give him a wake-up call about where his life was headed. Now, everyone here this morning has or is right now experiencing the provenient grace of God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here today. This is one of the most wonderful truths of Scripture, that God is already at work in your life whether you realize it or not. God is seeking you. God always makes the first move. No one comes to Christ on their own. Jesus comes all the way, first from heaven as a babe in the manger, but then he grows up to be that good shepherd who seeks the lost sheep, who, who lays down his life for the sheep long before they know that they're even lost. The fact that God's grace is provenient makes all the difference in the world. It means that we can't do anything to earn God's love. God's love is given, and everything we do then is in, a, in some way a response to his provenient grace. So these spirits come to Scrooge as messengers of grace, giving him the opportunity to have a second chance. First comes the visit of his old partner, Jacob Marley, and then the visit of the ghost of Christmas past. And they both touch Scrooge with deep regret. He saw things in his, fat, in his past that filled him with remorse. Now, he couldn't change the past, couldn't do anything about them, except maybe understand them better. Then came the ghost of Christmas present. This is the spirit that people today can most identify with because he's sort of a precursor to many of our current Christmas traditions. We see in this jovial giant, you know, he's bedecked in this green fur with holly wreaths all over. We see him in a figure very much like our modern understanding of Father Christmas or St. Nicholas or Papa Noel or Santa Claus. He opens Scrooge's eyes to see all that he had been missing, to the love and the joy of Christmas, but also to the harsher realities, the underbelly of poverty and want that plagued 1830s London. Because Scrooge had actually been blind to both, both the joy and to the suffering. And today we come to the last of the spirits, the spirit of Christmas yet to come. And this is a disturbing spirit. The clock strikes 12, Scrooge looks up, beholds this last phantom, slowly, gravely, silently approaching him, shrouded completely in black, its head, its face, its form all concealed. Nothing is visible except one bony finger extended from his hand. If the ghost of Christmas present kind of prefigured jolly old Saint Nick, the ghost of Christmas yet to come prefigures the grim reaper, even death. 
It's sort of Darth Vader and the Dementors of Harry Potter all rolled into one. It never speaks, it only points. And so when it comes new, near, Scrooge just kind of goes right down on his knees because it seems to bring with it this whole atmosphere of gloom. Well, this dark-robed visitor then escorts Scrooge to a funeral. And we sense what Scrooge doesn't see right away, that the cold body lying underneath the sheet is actually Scrooge himself. Now, he knows something is wrong because no one is weeping for this departed soul. His business associates, they, they refuse to go to the funeral unless they're sure there's going to be a good lunch. A relieved couple hopes that their debt will die with the, with the, with the corpse. Everyone seems to be sort of glad that the man is dead. The laundry man, laundry woman, the maid, the undertaker, they all steal from the corpse without a hint of remorse. In fact, the only tears that we see from this ghost visit are not for the man under the sheet, but for a brief scene that we see at the Cratchit's house, where there's a vacant stool and a tenderly preserved crutch that show that tiny Tim has died. Their shared grief is very tangible as the Cratchit family tries to muster up just a little bit of joy in spite of their loss, but Bob Cratchit breaks down and sad as he cries out, my little child. Before Scrooge leaves, the Cratchits all vowed never to forget Tiny Tim, and Scrooge is left hearing these words, Spirit of Tiny Tim, thy childish essence was from God. But even that is not enough to break up Scrooge's heart of stone. The dreadful truth that finally strikes Scrooge is when the dark spirit takes him to a cemetery and points him towards a certain grave. It's only when Scrooge actually traces his own name chiseled into the tombstone does he realize he's the dead man. And it's not the death that troubles him. He knows he's going to die. The truth is that finally cracks open his hard shell is that he actually got his wish. He was left completely alone. There's no spouse or children by his side, uh, no friends to miss him to, or bid him goodbye, no one to protect his lifeless corpse or his hard-won wealth from those who would steal from it. And what's more, he now realizes that the only way he got rich was over, off the backs of the poor and that he did nothing to help Tiny Tim. In the shadow of things to come, Scrooge discovers that his whole life has been a shadow. A dark, frightening mist, it inspires fear, but eventually it disappears. No one will miss him when he's gone. In fact, they say, good riddance. Now, Scrooge witnesses what you may have wondered, which is, what will people say at your funeral? What will people say? Will there be tears? Will there be stories? Will there be joy? How many people will be there? Who will be there? What accomplishments will they mention? What stories will they tell? Perhaps most important of all, what legacy will you leave behind? What lasting impression has your life made? It's this sudden awareness of how alone he is that finally hits Scrooge like a cold slap in the face. And while he's on his knees groveling uh, before this open grave, it's like a dam bursts inside his chest and he begins to pour out his remorse. And Dickens describes it this way. Let me read. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? He cried upon his knees. The finger pointed from the grave to him and back again. No, spirit, oh, no, no, the finger was still there. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching its robe. Hear me, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been for all of this. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me, pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. 
I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirit of all three will shall thrive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on the stone. Scrooge's conversion is very dramatic, like most conversions that come out of some inner crisis. British writer G.K. Chesterton wrote of Scrooge's conversion that it was as sudden a conversion as as a man at a Salvation Army meeting. This was the moment of Scrooge's repentance. And as dramatic as this moment really is, it's actually not as important as what happens next. Because Charles Dickens somehow really understands the true nature of biblical repentance. I think when most of us hear the word repent or repentance, I mean, it sounds it's such a negative, it's a downer. Something gloomy and dark and depressing. Repent, I mean, it conjures up the image of the crazy street preacher, street preacher with a sandwich sign saying, you know, a warning of heaven and hell and fire and brimstone, kind of a turn or burn mentality. It's all judgment and condemnation. So no wonder the idea of repentance kind of gets a bad rep. Many of the writers commentating on Scrooge's change of heart actually see it as some kind of visitation from what they describe as the Old Testament God, the angry, mean God of the Old Testament, not the loving, gentle God of the New. People even talk about the differences, like there's this God of the Old Testament and this God of the New, as though there are, are two different gods. And when I hear that, I wonder if people have actually read the whole Old Testament or the New, or if they've only read the passages that support their own particular prejudice. Because the person in all the Bible who holds repentance in the highest is Jesus. There's no other figure in the Bible who puts such a high value on the importance of repentance than Jesus. Let me just give you two quick examples. His very first sermon, after he was baptized by John, the very first words out of his mouth, words that will define the rest of his ministry, Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Gospel of Mark says the exact same thing, Mark 1, 14. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe this good news. Repent, turn around. That's at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Well, then just flip to the end of Jesus' ministry after the resurrection. It's in the upper room with the disciples. Right before he gives the command to go globally, make disciples and baptize, he says this in Luke 4, 24, 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. That's, that's Jesus talking. So at the very beginning and the very end of his earthly ministry, Jesus holds up the absolute importance of repentance. You could say repentance sort of bookends everything else that he says and does. So you can't label repentance as just some Old Testament thing as you know, when Jesus put it so center stage in his own ministry. But you see, that's how I know that most people don't really understand what Jesus was talking about when he talked about repentance. People don't see the full picture. In our day, rarely, if ever, do you see someone truly repent, at least not in the public arena. When someone gets caught doing something they shouldn't do, most public apologies, they just don't come across as seeming very real. They all sound like they were written by the lawyers. 
you know. I'm sorry if anyone was offended by my actions, blah, blah, blah. If there's an if in the apology, it's not an apology. Because what they're really saying is, I'm sorry if you're so thin-skinned that what I said or did offended you. You're too sensitive, and it's really your fault for being so easily offended, not mine. I'm just sorry I got caught. That's nowhere near a real apology. A real apology says, I'm sorry that. I'm sorry that I hurt you. What I did was wrong. I would like to make amends for what I did. Godly repentance begins with this sincere acknowledgement of one's own behavior. No excuses, no quibbling, no throwing shade on the other person. And there should be some emotion behind the words. But the problem is that's where most people stop when it comes to their understanding of repentance. They stop with the person feeling bad. And with Christ, that is not the place to stop. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. If a person wallows in guilt, if they get into that spin cycle of self-loathing, friends, that is not of God. A person can feel bad, a person can feel great remorse, but remorse is not the same thing as repentance. How many folks have had to deal with someone who maybe has an addiction to alcohol or drugs? How often does the addict actually feel tremendous remorse for the damage that they've done, the lies, the broken promises, maybe the legal issues? They can feel tremendous remorse about their actions in that moment. But if there's no change, if they go right back to their addiction, if they just get back on the treadmill of making promises that they don't keep and then followed by guilt and shame and then back to their addiction, that is not repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. No regret. Godly repentance brings a sense of release, a sense of freedom, a sense of liberation. And this is what Dickens captures so beautifully as the story continues. Scrooge is holding up his hands in one last prayer to have his fate reversed. The image of the ghost of Christmas yet to come begins to morph and change. It slowly collapses into actually the bedpost of Scrooge's own room. He's back in his own room. He's reborn. And we see something happen to him physically. At first, it looks like he's choking. But then in reality, something else is happening to him. He's getting, he's getting ready to... Well, let's just watch it. Let's just watch it. Jacob, heaven, and Christmas time be praised. Still here. They're not torn down. Rings and all. They're here. Ah, I'm here. The shadows and the things that would have been can be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. I, I, 
don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. Scrooge is absolutely giddy with laughter. If you recall last week, I said, remember how Scrooge was afraid of the laughter of the jolly ghost of Christmas present. How much laughter terrified him because it was so opposite of his own nature. But now on the other side of repentance, it's his own laughter. It bubbles up uncontrollably from his own reborn soul. Any sense of joy that he'd had had been stuffed down so deep inside him for decades, but now it erupts like lava coming out of a volcano. He is overcome with joy. Later in the scene, Scrooge says, I'm as light as a feather, as happy as an angel, as merry as a schoolboy, as giddy as a drunken man. He is drunk with the happiness of his new life. The weight of his own sin has fallen off his shoulders. The monkey's off his back. He's the happiest he's ever been in his whole life. That's the picture of true repentance. Sorrow for a time, yes, but then grace comes flowing in and it cleanses and it frees. True repentance brings with it a sense of release. And then for the rest of the story, Scrooge is scurrying around to make amends for all the ways that he had mistreated people. From people on the streets to his nephew Fred to the Cratchits to everyone. He even goes to church for the very first time in decades to sing the praises of Christ the newborn king. This is the Scrooge we ought to remember. When we say the name Scrooge, we should envision a buoyant, joyful man whose heart was transformed. Scrooge is the resurrected life, the dead brought to life. He becomes a living example of all that God can do to empower people to forgive the past and then also in the present to love and to serve others. Scrooge is an example of what we would now call sanctifying grace. The grace that God gives, the desire to make amends, to live a better life, to live a life that counts. Repentance is not a mumbled, counterfeit sorry. It's finally seeing the truth about who we really are and what we've done. It's a decision to make things right and to turn away from wrong. Because if we just bury our mistakes and our sin behind us, it's just going to continue to repeat itself again and again. Instead of repeating, we need to repent and ask God to then remove these things from our life and experience the joy that comes as a result of this deep kind of repentance. Don't go halfway with Jesus. You see, that's the problem. Most people, they just go halfway. Go all the way. Anybody can experience remorse and regret for what they've done. What good is that? What good is that? Repentance is not just regret. Repentance takes regret to this next level. It's turning away from sin, yes, but even more importantly, it's a turning towards God and the new life that he provides. Godly sorrow through repentance leads to a new quality of life. And so Scrooge is living what Jesus promised in John 10.10, that I have come to give you life and that life in abundance. This is how we should remember Ebenezer Scrooge. Jesus was born in a manger so that he would grow up to bring a message of this kind of joyous repentance to the world. He didn't come just so we could celebrate his birth with parties and reindeer and all the rest. He came to call a sin-filled world back to God, paid the price, shed his blood so that there was a pathway back to God. He wants us to feel regret and remorse for our sin, but he doesn't want anybody to stop there. He wants us to complete the repentance process and move on to the joy of new life in him. 
our final view of Scrooge kind of reinforces this truth, that it's possible for people to change when nurtured by the prevenient and the sanctifying grace of Christ. The closing paragraph reads this way. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. It was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if many, any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us, and so as tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. This is just a story. It's written by an imperfect man who had his own issues. But Charles Dickens vividly tells us God's story of transformation through grace. You don't have to be what you've always been. You don't have to continue to do what you've always done. You don't have to live tomorrow like you lived yesterday. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name? Well, the angel told Mary and Joseph his name, told him, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So friends, repent and believe this good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this very stirring image of repentance and the joy of moving into a new life, free and forgiven, as we see happen in Scrooge. Lord. May we acknowledge that to be our experience. Yes, to feel remorse for where we have gone off the track. But Lord, to go all the way with you to that new life that comes through true repentance, where we know our sin is forgiven and we're set free to be all that you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you for that. Bless us this Christmas with that same spirit of repentance. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.